But that is where we will be tonight, Revelation chapter 20. Uh, One more time, or I think it's going to be two more times here in this chapter. I had hoped to take on a little bit more this evening than we normally do, but it didn't work out to be able to do that many verses. So we're going to take what I'm calling uh, this section here, the, the end of the millennium. We're going to take it in two parts. If you remember, we've been considering this open, opening section of the chapter, and the first 10 verses give us an explanation of what here in the apocalypse of Jesus Christ is calling the millennium. This period of time described as a thousand years. Now, this chapter is the only place in all of Scripture that identifies the thousand years. But we've seen over the past two sermons through verse 7 that these events are discussed at numerous other places in God's Word, and just lacking the mention of that specific term, a thousand years. And further, this book itself, Revelation, has spoken of this period of time at length through this book, this period of time in between Christ's first and second coming. And this is merely then a final recapitulation of things already described. Remember, a recapitulation is just a literary technique in which you explain something that's already been explained from a different angle, from a different perspective. So remember that this language of a thousand years is apocalyptic language. It's a specific genre of communication that is intended to reveal truth through symbols and allegorical language. And so what we have said, what we have shown is that this thousand years, or millennium, is speaking of our current age. It's speaking of the time, again, in between Jesus' first and second coming. And we've been thinking of it in light of the correlation to the second coming of Christ as well, remember? And so with verses 1 through 3, we noted that the binding of Satan and the placing of him uh, into into an abyss, a pit, and this was speaking of what was accomplished in verse 3 so plainly, the limiting of his authority so that he could no longer deceive the nations. And then in 4 through 7, we had a heavenly description (coughs) of what the saints in heaven will do and be caught up with during this whole period of time. Uh, It was a great encouragement. People who die in Christ here in this age will go to live with their Lord in heaven and reign with him there until he comes again, according to the timing and the counsel of his will. We saw other descriptions of this period of time, even the plight of the church on the earth in this book in previous chapters. But here in this last section through verse 10, we have the close of the millennium in view. And what was foreshadowed in verse 3, that Satan will be released, is now told with a little bit more detail. And with like the previous sections, this isn't like totally new information. Uh, We've seen things described here that will be described in 7 through 10 and even 11 through 15 in other places in this book, but it's just been said a little bit differently. And then again, through the close of this chapter, through 15, you have scripture describing further detail of what will happen at the very end of the millennium with the judgment of Christ's return, return, and it ties back into what we saw in verses 5 and (coughs) 6. So let's read our text and then ask the Lord for help. We're going to read... Uh, just the remainder of the chapter. So we'll begin in verse 7 with the word of the Lord. It says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. 
the beloved city, the fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne with him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And, it, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the, bed who, the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, that ends the reading of God's holy, sufficient, and inspired word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we need you. We need you all the time, Lord, but especially now, coming to your word and with, again, a section of your word that is highly debated among people who love you and agree that Jesus is Lord. We pray, Lord, especially now, that you would make clear your word, that, Holy Spirit, you would impart understanding to us, that you would give us eyes that see and ears that hear, that we might rightly understand your word, and therefore rightly glorify and exalt you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs> so, here in Revelation 20, uh, the last half of it, everything has come to focus now upon judgment. Judgment of the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, who's Satan, uh, the deceiver of the whole world. And then judgment of humanity as well. The two beasts and the harlot are mentioned once again. Remember, they've been judged, and they were and that was described at the end of Revelation chapter 19. And so Revelation 20, 7 through 10, is a recapitulation of those events. And now here in 20, we're shown the judgment of the dragon, who was first introduced to us back in Revelation 12. So notice, the judgment of the dragon comes in two stages. Initially, he's bound. The start of the millennium is when that happens. But eventually, he'll be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where he'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. That happens at the end of the millennium. So, when was Satan bound? When was he judged initially? When was a blow struck against him, properly speaking? That answer is that it's not sometime in the future from now. That answer is that it happened when he was bound at Christ's first coming, specifically and especially through his work on the cross and through the ascension where he was exalted. He's the exalted Messiah and he has began his session as our mediating king. When the, and the gospel at that point began to go out into the world and it began to bear much fruit. He was then bound, but not entirely, but specifically Remember that the purpose supplied in the text says that so he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Verse 3. So then, Satan was initially judged at Christ's first coming. He's, he's bound. It's apocalyptic language. He was defeated and detained then. He was restrained so that the church might carry out her mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. No longer does Satan have authority over the nations to keep them in darkness because the nations have been given to Christ as his heritage and the ends of the earth are his possession psalm 2 8 says and that's that's true right now in other words the point being is that christ is king and his kingdom 
was, well, the way he described it, was at hand during his inaug- the inauguration of it, when he came and he, he preached after his baptism, at his first coming. And it's growing, it's advancing now, and it will be here in fullness, that is, it will be consummated at his second coming, the parousia, second advent, whatever it is you want to call it. But it's not like Satan is totally gone right now. He, he hasn't been rendered absolutely useless and powerless. Make no mistake, you know, he's alive and he's still considered an enemy, and, but he's now he's like a wounded animal in a trap. And so the Bible is certainly true when it says that Satan prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to desire, as it does in 1 Peter 5.8. As true as this is, we, we must not ignore what the scriptures say, this, this tension we have to hold. That Satan is already judged, defeated, detained, and restrained, yet he's still an enemy that we must contend with, all according to God's plan. And this will be Satan's condition throughout the period of time signified by the thousand years of Revelation 20. Again, call it a church age, call it the new covenant era, call it this present evil age, the millennium, whatever you want to call it. It's this period of time in between Christ's first and second coming. And it was during this time that people experience we're told the first death as it's described here we spoke of that last time and by that they just mean physical death and at at it at this i think verse five is where it spoke of that five or six and it was during this time that those who die in christ do experience what this passage calls the first resurrection meaning that they go to be with christ rule and reign and to rule and reign with christ not in body, but in soul. It's that intermediate state we talked about last time. So not to be confused with the way that we might speak of a person being born again and how that is a resurrection. When one goes from death to life, from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. But what's talking about here in this first resurrection is in this context of Revelation 20, as, is, as William Hendrickson says, a translation of the soul from the sinful earth to God's holy heaven where then they will reign and rule with Christ for the remainder of this you know, millennium, new covenant era. Blessed and holy are the ones who share in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death, that is, the final judgment, after the return of Christ, will have no power, but they will be priests of God, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. 26. It's during this age, this time period, that Satan is bound. He's already been partially judged. He is defeated, detained, restrained, such a way now that even when believers, when they die, they are translated up into heaven with him now here in this new covenant era. And we don't have time this evening to consider what happened with saints before the new covenant era, but that's an interesting discussion to have. Nevertheless, they were still with the Lord. It was perhaps a different scenario, though, but that's, that's too much to get into tonight. So when the thousand years are ended, it's at that point when Satan will be fully and finally judged. He'll be removed entirely from the world, and he, along with everyone else who opposes God and resists his rule, from both angels and men, will experience what is written here. Look at verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented there day and night forever and ever. That would be eternal judgment. Correct? It's very clear. Forever and ever they'll be tormented there. It's conscience then, you know. It's not devoid of thinking or awareness. It's torment forever and ever. And this will happen at the same time 
or shortly thereafter, as what is described in Revelation 19.20. So you could probably see it. It's probably there on the same page in your Bible. But there it says, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Same lake of fire that's being talked about there. Same event. If you assume that the book of Revelation is organized or put together chronologically, you'll think that the two beasts were judged, and then a thousand years will pass, after which the dragon will be judged. But remember, it's not the correct way to see this book. It's not the correct way to read what's happening here. The correct way is to see that this book is organized with themes. It's organized thematically, and it therefore recapitulates. It shows the same event at different times from different angles to give a fuller picture in light of the theme. And so in chapter 19... We saw the judgment of the two beasts, but now it focuses here in 20 on the judgment of Satan. And that comes 10 verses after the judgment of the beast. But in fact, these events in time when it happens will transpire on the same day. Both will happen at the end of this new covenant era when Christ returns bodily to judge the living and the dead. Now you see things in this book are going this book of Revelation, you see how things are going, I hope. God's creation is being progressively purged of all that is evil. It's being purged of all the darkness that did enter into it by the fall of man. That's what's happening here at the end. The light is being, is being separated from darkness, the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. And what will remain at the end of this age? The judgment. The wicked will be judged but Christ will vindicate his people. As Revelation 3, 5 says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. That's what we'll be considering when we get to 11 to 15. God and his Christ and his people will remain along with the elect angels. Everything that is evil will be relegated, though, to the lake of fire. This includes the dragon himself, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And so he, he is here in Revelation 20, removed from the scene, not to be mentioned again after this verse, that, in verse 10. Not only does Revelation 20 speak of the binding of Satan at Christ's first coming and the final judgment of Satan at Christ's second coming, but also speaks something about his release. So let's consider that because it's essential in leading up to the judgment and ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth. Satan's release, again, remember, was first mentioned in verse 3. This was always the plan, that means, from the moment of his binding. When, when God declared Satan to be bound, when his, when his authority was removed and he was no longer able to deceive the nations, it was God's plan at that point, to release him then at the end of this new covenant era, at the end of this age. It's not like Satan was like, you know, a, a prisoner from Alcatraz and he figured out a way to get an escape and that's what ushers in the end. No, this was all God's plan. Satan doesn't have some upper hand when he's released from prison. This is God's plan from the jump. And then verse 7 picks up where verse 3 lets off and it describes to us again, when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Interesting here that it calls it a prison. It's abyss up in, or a pit up in verse 3. He'll come out to deceive the nations there at the four corners of the earth. 
Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So when will this happen? It happens at the end of the thousand years and immediately before Christ returns. What will Satan do when he is released? He'll deceive the nations. And when Christ will come after that, hence Jesus returns after the millennium. I don't know, we're not told exactly how much time there is between the the release of Satan and the return of Christ, but it seems relatively soon. And relative is a human word, thinking of time, right? Because God is outside of time anyway. So I'm not trying to speak with great uh, dogmatism at how long that period will be, but that's what we see here. Notice, But it's not really actually like just one or two nations that he'll deceive. But it's the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. That's another way of saying the nations that are all throughout the earth. That's another way of saying all of the peoples that are in the world, all nations. Here, they're called Gog and Magog. Not because, again, only two nations are in view, because that would contradict what was just said concerning the nations being gathered from the four corners of the earth. And neither is that in reference to some sort of modern Russia government. Now, there's, there's no good evidence for that. I don't know how you could grab that, really, uh, from the text, even looking at you know a map and trying to place where Gog and Magog are. Uh, remember... This has to mean something to the original audience that it was given to. It, it was for their encouragement as well, as well as ours. But, you know, especially theirs, considering that they have specific instruction written to them in those first two or second and third chapter. And so this has to mean something to them. So why is it that Gog and Magog are mentioned here? Well... It's so that we might see this end-time event in light of what was said in Ezekiel 38 and 39, considering Israel's enemies there. Gog and Magog uh, oppressed and opposed God's people. Uh, Assyria, that is. That's who that really was. And they were big enough and powerful enough to destroy God's people. But they didn't because God intervened and he judged them and he defeated them. So notice Ezekiel 38:16. You, Gog or Assyria, will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Or Ezekiel 39:6. I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands and they shall know that I am the Lord. So notice, the same kind of language that's used here in Revelation 20, 7 through 10, isn't it? It's very reminiscent on purpose. That's why Gog and Magog are are mentioned here. It's because the same thing will happen at the end of time, but on a universal and climactic scale. Furthermore, we're told that those who are gathered for battle are like the sand of the sea. They're, They're so numerous that they can't be counted. So this is is just speaking there of the the size of the opposition to God in the world, what it will be like here prior to the coming of Christ at his second coming. And and so notice again, I mean, very similar. If there's that many people, well, they could just utterly wipe out the church. 
they could just utterly kill us all. That's what they so chose to do, just like Gog and Magog could have done in Ezekiel's day. Uh, the enemies of, of God could have done to God's people in Ezekiel 38 39. But what happened? God intervened and spared them. And as they said, brought fire down on Magog, the same sort of thing that we are reading of here in Revelation 20 that God will do to uh, the people at the ends of the age. And he'll be vindicating his holy name before the world's eyes in doing so. What will these nations do at this point once they are again deceived at the end of time? Well, uh, certainly they're going to be given to unbelief and to rebellion against God and Christ. More than that, though, they're going to cooperate to ferociously oppose and oppress God's people living throughout the earth so as to destroy them. Again, notice what it says in verse 9. And they, meaning these forces who are in the world that don't fear God, who, who aren't in union with Christ, who don't love God and his gospel, verse 9 says, they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But here we go again. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So, Will there be a great tribulation at the end of time? Well, not if you have in mind the great tribulation of the pre-tribulational premillennials. No, there will not be a great tribulation that lasts seven or three and a half years that begins after the Christians are secretly raptured out of the world and all is being left behind. That is a, a, a myth. But yes, there is reason to believe that at the end of the time of the church, that is to say, the true church, will find herself under assault as the nations of the earth come against her to seek her destruction. And the enemies of God and the church come against the camp of the saints and the beloved city is what we read. That's symbolic language once once more. We're not to think of localized places here. These are apocalyptic ways of saying that the church all over the world, so that the camp, connotes a a temporary existence that we have here as we await the new heavens and the new earth it's like the camp of israel in their wilderness wandering which revelation has before described in a similar way the church as being in the wilderness here in this age and we're passing through this great tribulation the beloved city just referencing their collective group of saints that are alive at this time the people who are beloved to God because they are united to his beloved and one and only son. But we should be clear, it will be a tough time for the people of God at that time. Tougher than normal, which I get is subjective depending upon the time and the place that we consider. But the point is, here at the end of the age, at the end of the new covenant era, is that it will be tough everywhere for the church. You know how it is kind of right now in the church throughout the last... 2,000 years, there have been pockets of the world where Christians have got along fairly well and, and fairly easily, but other pockets of the world where they suffer intense persecution, where they're persecuted, where they're martyred, where they can't worship openly. But in other places, again, you know, worship openly, uh, even almost to a fault, because it just makes the Christians in those places so weak and so prone to error and heresy because there there is no cost in, in some way for living for the truth. But here at the end of the age, what we're seeing is this is going to be bad everywhere for Christians. That, that's what, when it says that 
the enemies march around the beloved city in the camp. It's saying that everywhere will be difficult for Christians. We've we read this before from Second Thessalonians, but let me remind you of what's said there. It's verse 7 through 10. Speaking of the same things that we're dealing with here in 27 through 10 in Revelation. <coughs> it says, And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. So, political powers will persecute. False religions will persecute. Most deceptively, Christian cults will persecute. And by that, I don't really mean things like the Mormons, but liberal and progressive Christianity and the Roman Catholics, for example. Uh, specifically, a final and satanically empowered Antichrist, who was also called this lawless one, will himself be present. And it says, you know, again, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And notice how that parallels to Revelation 27 through 10 as well, very, very closely. The destruction comes from the hand of the Messiah. And likely, you know, this lawless one will be a pope in Rome since he is considered to be the vicar of Christ in their teaching, meaning by that a single authoritative representative and voice of Christ here on the earth. And of course, Rome sadly has a false gospel. Uh, notice what our confession says on, on the chapter on the church and who is the head of the church. Because the Roman Catholic religion claims that the pope is the head of their church. But we as Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Westminster and also the Congregationalists and the Savoy Declaration, they all say the same thing. It says, The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church in whom, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, that exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. You see, speaking here in the confession of the very things we're seeing in Scripture here. So again, we read the nations will be gathered to war against Christ and his church. When all is considered, it is evident that the church will find herself under an organized and worldwide assault before Christ comes. And it's to this situation that the Lord will return to rescue his beloved bride. But we've seen this before, so turn back if you like, or you could just listen. Revelation 16, 12 through 16, uh, describes the last days as a day when, verse 14, kings of the whole world will be assembled for battle against the great day of God Almighty. <coughs> Over to chapter 19. Verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against whom who was sitting upon the horse and against his army. Who was sitting upon the horse? The rider on the white horse that we read of in uh, chapter 19, right before that. 
And then it speaks of the capturing of the beast and they're throwing them into the lake of sulfur and fire again. Revelation 20, it's just a recapitulation of what we've already seen here in the before and previous sections. And then again in Revelation 29, just to keep with the theme, and that and they, meaning the armies of the nations of the earth, who are like the sand of the sea in number, they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of saints in their beloved city. And but fire came down from heaven and consumed them, just like we read with Magog in Ezekiel 39. But this battle is not what we might think. Considering the buildup and the scope of it, I mean, the description is the whole world against the church, ready to devour her. But it's, it's somewhat anticlimactic, isn't it? The, the enemies position themselves against God and his people, but then fire comes down and consumes them. I don't think literal. It's speaking of judgment. But then notice how quickly our Lord makes an end of the dragon. In verse 10, we simply read, The devil who had to see them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is, again, it's hell, eternal, lasting punishment. I used to watch a, an anime as a teenager called Dragon Ball Z. Uh, you gotta be, got to be careful with anime today, especially. I mean, a lot of androgyny, a lot of wickedness is in that culture. But I loved Dragon Ball Z as a teenager because because of the battles in them. But they would have these, they would have a few episodes where they would go and it would kind of just be like filler. It would kind of drag a little bit, explaining like background to the characters and how they're preparing for this battle. But then when it came to the fight, uh, it would just go on and on. Battles of epic proportion with fighters pushing their limits and doing things that you can only be done in a cartoon. But like 10 and 12 episode long fights. But that's not what we see happening here at the end of the age. It's not like as great as Satan and the, the great power that Satan and these beasts have and, and Babylon and the, the prostitute and the collection of the kings and the armies of the world is as great and as mighty as they are. It's not going to be a big battle. It's going to be over with the, with the breath of the Lord. That's, not, that's what happens at the end of the age. The brevity of the description of Satan's destruction is astonishing, especially when you consider how much trouble he's caused throughout history, beginning with his, his first appearance in the garden where he did tempt that first woman and the first man, Adam and Eve. And by the looks of things, you'd expect the battle to be great. Christ and his army battling against Satan and his. By the looks of, the, of things, as we look out upon the world and, the, and observe the power of the nations and the forces of darkness and also as we consider the visions of Revelation 20 and see Satan and his hordes standing as numerous as the sand of the sea, you would think it's like, you know, a, the battle of ministerial. Like, if, you know, you would think it's this huge battle that's going to happen, an epic battle, but the Lord makes quick work of the evil one. He's slain by the word of Christ. And then he's thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they'll be tormented there day and night forever and ever. Make no mistake, Satan's rebellion that has been taking place since the creation of the world, even though the judgment upon him and the battle at the end will be fast, his punishment will be eternal. And he was killed by the breath of his mouth, as it says in Second Thessalonians. And on that day, the people of God will no longer be threatened. It's over. Then comes the judgment. 
it makes you think, you know, could it be that we are in that time now? Could it be, you know, that, that that's what we're seeing all of around us right now? I mean, let's face it, the way that life has changed just for us just so fast in our lifetime has been exponential compared to our parents, our grandparents, right? I mean, life for, for them for a long time, for centuries, remained relatively stable. And then you get to the 20th century and things start to change. 21st century, it's not you know that long ago. It hasn't been very long really at all. Think about what's changed ever since the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage, which is an attack against the family. And we're not talking about an issue here that simply has to do with gay marriage. We're talking about the floodgates opening on sexual immorality and perversion, the kind of which most wouldn't be able to foresee coming, at least for here in the United States. I mean, take yourself, and really this is in every other nation now as well too, but take yourself back to 2000 and say, I think like, you know, what if someone asked you in 2000, which I know some of you young people weren't even born at that point yet, but you have to understand that it was, I mean, I was already an adult at that time, and it was just a very different world that we live in. But imagine if you were living in 2000, and somebody told you that there's coming a day where you'll be able, and very soon, where you'll be able to decide if you're a male or a female. Or you'll be able to decide, actually, if you're a dog. You know, and, and what would you have said? You would have been like, oh, you know, that's called gender dysphoria, but it's just a really small part of the population. It's like 1% of 1% of the people suffer from it. Uh, you wouldn't even have thought anything about it. Or what if someone said to you, <coughs> you know, um, we're coming up to a day here where laws are going to be passed, where, where well, they'll say that parents actually cannot prevent their children from actually having hormone treatments and sex change operations. The parents are going to be prevented by the government from being involved in such a life-altering decision in the life of their very own child. I mean, who would believe that? And yet, that's where we are. And that's, you know, just the tip of the iceberg. And so whatever is going on, clearly we see an escalation of evil. It is an escalation of evil. It is the rescission of God's providential kindness. And you know what it does? Well, it makes the people of God say, Lord, come quickly. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly, Lord Jesus. This is a, a dark time for the United States, for Western culture, and even Eastern culture. And that's somewhat unique because we're more connected now through technology than before. There have been darker and bleaker times in the past, at least compared to what we are experiencing here in the United States. But in God's kindness and wisdom, it wasn't the end of, of time. And what are we are approaching now, is it that? I, I don't know. But as every day goes by, of course, it is getting closer, even if there are many good days ordained left still. But friends, we should not despair when we think of these things. Things don't seem like they're getting better now. That seems clear. <coughs> there are, of course, bright spots. And it, and it seems wise to be pessimistic about the darkness of this present age, while at the same time being optimistic about the gospel and its advance. And so we shouldn't despair. 
And that's especially true because of what we'll see here in the next scene in Revelation. That is, there'll be judgment for every evil and vindication for the one who is resting in Christ. But for the sake of time tonight, we'll save that last section of chapter 20 until next time and close here with these thoughts. What have we seen here in these texts uh, have served to be a reminder to us that we should expect conflict until the very end? Verses 1 through 3. Remember, these are all speaking of what happened in this event that we're in this time we're presently living in, the millennium. Verses 1 through 3, Satan is bound and the gospel goes out into this world. Verses 4 through 6, whoever believers in this age die, which many of whom will be opposed and persecuted and some will even be martyred, they will go to rule and reign with the Lord. Verse 7 through 10, at the end of the age, Satan will be loose and attacks against the church and the people of God will increase. So we're seeing through all of this that we should expect conflict to the end. Christ told his disciples in the world, you'll have tribulation. John 16, Peter wrote, Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But let's also not lose heart in the face of, of such tribulation. <coughs> because each of those verses continues on to say, John 16, In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And Peter said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And when will that happen, friends? <coughs> the end of the age. So let's remember that God and his Messiah, our Lord Jesus, who is the Son of God, they are ruling and reigning to, the, to an end. <coughs> Excuse me. To an end uh, that all the evil in this world will eventually come to an end. And more, saints have been given authority to rule and reign with them. And the very worst thing that can happen to you, friends, if you are united to Christ, the very worst thing that can happen to you, the taking of your life, is but the entrance that God would have ordained for you to be in his presence in a more full way. Not because you deserve it or earned it, but because God has been gracious to you in Christ. Because your faith is in Jesus, who lived a holy life in your stead, and then he died upon the cross, taking upon himself the tribulation that you deserve <coughs> so that you can share in his glory. What a tremendous gospel that is. Let's pray. <coughs> Glorious God, we are so grateful to know the end of the story. Thank you for telling us what will happen in the future so that we may have hope, knowing that no matter... <coughs> excuse me, how bad things get. You are greater than them and all things are happening according to the counsel of your will. And eventually, Lord, at your perfect timing, when all of your people are drawn in and gathered in like, a, like as in a dragnet, that you will come back at that time to vindicate your people and to punish forever uh, your enemies and <coughs> our enemy as well. We look forward until the day of being completely holy and in Christ, Lord, knowing that now while we struggle in these sinful bodies, uh, we're so glad to know that even uh, now Christ is living to make intercession for us. 
And so keep us, Lord. Uh, we pray that you would work salvation in the lives of our loved ones as well. Lord, help us to be quick to tell of your gospel, knowing that all of these things are true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs> <coughs>